We have a bridge being constructed over uh, Little Sugar Creek at the bottom of our hill on Mercy Way in Bella Vista. Um, its purpose is to accommodate the 8,000 commuters that travel Mercy Way every day. Um, it's a replacement project, and the price tag is around $7.6 million. It began last April, and I... Um, don't know what I was thinking, but I was thinking it was going to be done by the time I got back from sabbatical. Uh, I underestimated the work that goes into the building of a bridge. Um, the project, like all projects, began with the building of piers. Uh, there are three of them, and the piers are, of course, very important. It provides stability. It uh, keeps the bridge up, which is very important, um, and to provide the, um, the stability that, that the bridge needs and to um, prevent erosion, the piers are buried and anchored underneath the ground. And um, depending on the depth of the water, uh, they could be buried as much as 80 feet. And I think with as much water as we receive in the spring here, that's, I hope that's the case for our bridge. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a minute, because then I've got this question. How many of you have seen the Navigator illustration called The Bridge? It is a very simple, straightforward, um, evangelistic tool that can be drawn on a napkin. And in that illustration, you have one hill with man uh, on it, and then another hill with God on it. And um, of course, the only thing to bridge the two, to bridge the chasm that is created between the two by sin, is of course the cross of Christ. And if I was hip, I'd have a picture uh, behind me to show you if you don't know what that looks like. Um, now, what do these two things have in common? Well, listen to these words from Michael Brown and Zach Keel. He says, the, or they say, the apostolic preaching of the gospel is the bridge that brings us to God as Savior. It is paved and clearly marked. But the pillars, the piers on this bridge, which are rooted deep into the riverbed below, belong to Genesis 1 to 3. The streaming water may hide the piers, uh, pillars from our eyes at times, yet without the Genesis pillars, the gospel viaduct would begin crumbling beneath our feet, hurling us headfirst into water. Genesis 1 to 3 forms the essential foundation for the gospel, especially because it reveals the covenant of work. This is exactly why I said when we began our study of Genesis that we cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament in general or um, Genesis in particular. And this is really going to become apparent tonight. I want us to see three things in the passages or in the passage that Aaron just read. I want us to see first the parties, and then I want us to see the scene, and then the relationship 
that are all a part of the description of what we call the covenant of works. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, in these moments, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear by the power of your Spirit, that we may understand the truth of your Word. Grant us humble and contrite spirits, and keep us from all worldly wisdom. I am weak and needy, and in need of your help. I am in need of your grace, and I'm in need of your spirit to fill me so that I might do something good for you this evening. So would you help me to communicate clearly and with fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and his church. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that I believe the first three verses of chapter two actually belong in chapter one. And um, one of the reasons I didn't mention um, for that to be the case is what we read in verse 4 of chapter 2, which says, these are the generations of. Uh, It's a phrase that we're going to see uh, repetitively throughout our study of Genesis, and in each case, it always introduces a new section of the book, and tonight is no exception. You see, we're moving on, but we're... We're not moving on um, from one account of creation to another account of creation. We're moving on from a big picture to a smaller picture. Okay? We're moving from a big picture of creation in general to a uh, particular scene within that bigger picture. We're moving from a wide-angle lens that caught all of creation to a telephoto lens that is going to allow us to isolate the creation of man from the larger picture of creation. And that's going to mean a couple of things, and I just want to let you know tonight. First, verses 4 to 7 are not a chronological recap of the first five days of creation that contradict the first account of creation in chapter 1 and therefore invalidate the creation story. And secondly, verses 10 to 14, I hate to break this to some of you, but verses 7 to 14 or 10 to 14 were not written to inform us of where Eden is located, and we're not going to go there, Okay. As I've mentioned, the purpose of this passage, the purpose of the book is to provide a, or the purpose of these uh, chapters are to provide a background for us to understand more about redemption and the gospel. To be more specific, without these 14 verses, we don't understand the fall. And as Aaron Uh, reminded us in November, back when we began our nine lessons and carols for Christmas, if we don't understand the fall, we do not understand redemption or our salvation. In the words of Alan Ross, to know what God had invested in human life and what He had expected of it is to know what was lost at the fall. So that said, let's look at these first uh, few verses in verses 4 to 7 and look at the parties of the covenant that we 
are going to see formed here in chapter 2. And the first is, of course, God. God is the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who brought order out of chaos. He is the one who brought uh, fullness to that which was empty. The one who brought life out of what was barren. Remember, the original audience were currently in the desert. And Moses is writing and, and, and reminding them that there was a time that the ground hadn't been cultivated and rain hadn't fallen and things were more barren than the desert that they were in. As a matter of fact, there was a time when there wasn't even a desert. There was a time, of course, when there was nothing at all, but God brought something out of that nothing. But notice, He doesn't focus solely on God as sovereign creator. Moses switches from calling Him God or Elohim that he did 35 times in chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 to calling Him Lord God or Yahweh Elohim beginning in verse 4. See, Yahweh is the personal name for God that was unique to Israel. It describes His covenantal and His relational nature. Gordon Wenham put it this way when he summarized another commentator. He, he said, Moses used Yahweh deliberately to express his conviction that Yahweh is both Israel's covenant partner and the God of all creation. Yahweh is not merely Israel's national deity, but the sovereign God who controls all of creation. So that's the first party, Yahweh Elohim. Now the second party, of course, is man. Look at verse 7. Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man was no afterthought. He was created intentionally. His, uh, he was designed with care and precision. He was a work of God that was fearfully and wonderfully made. As we said in the previous two weeks, He was the crowning achievement of creation. But before we let it go to our heads, we need to remember and notice that we were created from the dust. As Calvin wrote, only an excessively stupid person does not learn humility from this point. From dust we came, and from dust we will return. And yet, we're more than a lump of dirt. Our worth and value are derived from the fact that we were made in the image of God. And the manner in which we were given life was very personal, even intimate. It was face-to-face, -face, close enough to receive the divine breath of God Himself. Just think of a slow exhale as you stand outside over the next couple of days to watch your breath. Or think of it as the gentle blowing that revives a fire. He gave man life by making him breathe. But it did more than awaken Adam. Uh, through the breath, um, Adam became an immortal being, a living soul. 
And again, in the words of Calvin, three gradations indeed are to be noted in the creation of man. His dead body was formed out of the dust of the earth. It was endued with a soul, and on this soul God engraved His own image to which immortality was annexed. And brothers and sisters, this should be a great, great encouragement for all of us in one specific and very important way, and that is this. What is true physically and creatively is also true spiritually and redemptively. We said this a couple of weeks ago. The same spirit that was the agent of creation is the same spirit that is, that is the agent of recreation. The same spirit that was hovering over the face of the deep is the same spirit who regenerates and who lives within us. God breathed life into man at creation, and God breathes life into man at recreation. Our, our salvation is the work of an omnipotent, almighty, sovereign, yet personal, loving, and kind God. And that God has purposefully created us. He has purposefully recreated us, both by the kind intention of His will. Our value and worth is derived from who we are as image bearers of God, a God, again, who has chosen to recreate us. He's chosen to restore us. He's chosen to restore that which was lost in order that He may dwell with us. Well, after introducing the parties, Moses then moves on to uh, the scene, and he describes that scene in verses 8 to 14. The scene is a garden, and it's a garden in Eden. In the words of Derek Kidner, it's not a symbol. It's an actual, not an allegorical or mythical spot. An accurate picture would be, you think of the world... And then you think of a specific region in the world, and then at the east part of that region, there's a garden, and that garden is defined or surrounded by a barrier or a hedge, and it was a place for man to live. It was a place specifically created for him and eventually and soon to be them. It was lush. It was a place of beauty. It was a place of abundance. It was not only good to look at or beautiful to look at, pleasing to look at, but it was also filled with trees that were plentiful with fruit, all of which was good for food. It was a place of fertile soil. It was a place of abundant water. It was full of precious stones. It was a place fit for royalty. And if we had more time, we could delve into the fact that it was not only a real place, but again, in the words of Mr. Wenham, it was an archetypal sanctuary, a place where God dwells that prefigured both the tabernacle and the temples to come. But because we don't have time, let me suggest you do that study on your own. Look into that Eden being a temple garden. It will be well worth your time.
Well, in this garden or sanctuary, God placed two trees, and both trees, like the other trees in the garden, were pleasant to the sight and good for food. One was called the tree of life, and it was a sign of the promise of the abundant and eternal life that God was making available to Adam. The other tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we'll see in a minute uh, served as a test. The test would be to see if Adam would choose to use the moral ability that, that was a part of his image bearing to act autonomously and choose what was right and wrong for himself or if he would rely upon God's Word as it was revealed to him. And that leads us to our last point. Look again at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly, the word translated put or place, depending on your translation, comes from the word rest. And it is related to the word rest that is used in Psalm 95.11 that is, of course, quoted in Hebrews 4 that should take us back to last week in the first three verses of chapter 2. God placed man in the garden to have and begin, or to begin and to have a relationship with him. He put him there to rest, a relationship that man alone could have with him. Man alone was going to experience this relationship. It was a relationship that God chose to have with him, again, out of the kind intention of his will. It wasn't a relationship that man had merited. He hadn't earned it. But it's also interesting to know that there was nothing that Adam had done up to that point to prevent it. In the words of Lincoln Duncan, the relationship between Adam and God was, of course, unearned or unmerited. Adam hadn't done anything to earn this special relationship, but there was no demerit in Adam either. In order to enter into this relationship, God did not have to overcome sin. And God gave Adam something to do. The relationship that God was creating between the two, he... It included stipulations. He goes on to say, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In other words, Adam had obligations within this relationship. There was, a, there was work to do. And the, and the work Adam was given to do or the obligations he was given to fulfill were very, very positive. Adam was to work and to keep the garden. Right? He was to cultivate it. He was to nurture it. He was to protect it. He was to do everything that he could to see that the garden flourished. And of course, this tells us something very important, and that is like marriage and like procreation and like Sabbath keeping, work is a creation ordinance. Work is, is not something that was the result of the fall. The curse of the fall was that work would become a source of heartache and, and, and struggle. But work is a blessing. 
Again, in the words of Calvin, men were created to work and not to be inactive or indolent. This labor truly was pleasant and full of delight, entirely free from all trouble and weariness. So nothing is more contrary to the order of nature than to spend all one's life in eating, drinking, and sleeping. Mr. Wenham adds, even before the fall, man was expected to work. Paradise was not a life of leisured unemployment. Work is intrinsic to human life. But we also see that these obligations, not all the obligations were positive. There was an obligation that was negative. There was a negative obligation of the law. But what's interesting about the positive obligation is that, again, we see this illusion that brings the idea of the garden being a sanctuary that points forward to the tabernacle and temples. And that's because the word translated work and keep are used throughout the first five books of the Bible, and they describe spiritual service. The word keep is used of obeying God's word. It's used of keeping his commandments and keeping the Sabbath and keeping the covenant. And the word work and serve refers to spiritual service. And so Alice Ross, or Alan Ross points out the significant words selected do support a higher purpose than gardening. What was that higher purpose? Adam was functioning as a priest. Through his working, that God had given him to do. He was offering spiritual service to God in his sanctuary. He had been consecrated and set apart to live as holy in a place that would, in which the presence of the holy God would dwell, like the priests to come. Again, a study of this temple garden motif is worth exploring. But as I mentioned, there was, there was still a negative obligation. God gave Adam a law to follow, and it was a matter of life and death. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God said, look around. Adam, I want you to see what's around you. And as you dwell here with me, you will lack absolutely nothing. Adam, look around. I have lavishly supplied all of your needs. Adam, take a look. Because you are not going to be deprived in any way from anything. But there's one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat ever from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Never eat of its fruit. For if you do, you will die. And beloved, it's not that the tree was poisonous. Every tree in the garden was beautiful and good for eating. Every tree was good. 
This was a test, as I said. God put before Adam the choice between life and death. God placed before Adam the choice to use, to either use his moral ability that was a part of his image bearing or to choose God. He could either choose to autonomously decide what was right or wrong, or he could choose to listen to God in his word. And if he chose to obey, he would live. And if he chose to die, I'm sorry, if he chose to disobey, he would die. And we have to understand, Adam was living in the lap of luxury. He was living unencumbered in paradise. So the life that his obedience would earn was more than physical. It was eternal. His obedience would earn a glorified life and the impossibility of death. Therefore, his disobedience would earn more than physical death. The death would be eternal as well. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that Adam was created in holiness and righteousness and therefore had every ability to succeed. He had been equipped and given everything that he needed to succeed. Having been created in the image of God, he he had uh, the nature, right? His nature was inclined toward that which would cause him to succeed, He was righteous and pure. He had to be, had to be righteous and pure to dwell in the midst of a holy God. Again, in the words of Brown and Keel, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign to declare the value of life, and He valued it the price of perfect obedience. It was covenantly determined merit. The Lord determined the terms of the covenant and His justice will make sure it is upheld. It's what we call a covenant of works. And there are three things I want us to take away from this. And first is this. The covenant of works reflects God's standard when it comes to being in a relationship with Him. A covenant is is a relationship established by God. And it's a relationship that has both obligations and privileges. It has both blessings and curses. If you've been a part of the Wednesday morning Bible study, you know that old Palmer Robertson defines a covenant as a bond of blood sovereignly administered. And this is exactly what we have here. God established the relationship or the bond Himself. We see God sovereignly administrating or setting the parameters and determining the obligations by himself. These weren't things that were negotiated between he and Adam. And of course, we also see that this relationship or bond was one of life and death. Again, the Lord determined the terms of the covenant and, the ju- and his justice will make sure that it is upheld. God The covenant of works reflects God's standard when it comes to being in a relationship with Him. Secondly, 
Adam's failure to keep the obligations that were a part of the covenant of works affects our condition. And that's because Adam was not acting only on his behalf. Adam was working on uh, or acting on our behalf as well. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, in the words of C.S. Lewis, are a, is, is either a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. And Adam was our federal head. And had he obeyed, he would have obeyed for us all. But having disobeyed, he disobeyed for us all. Therefore, his sin and guilt have been imputed to us. And his sin and his guilt and his corrupt nature has been inherited by us. Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He said, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin." As our shorter catechism, question 19 says, All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. We are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And I could leave us there because that's the end of our passage. But I'm not. I don't know about you, I don't want to be left there. Fortunately for us, that's not the last takeaway because the covenant of works, while it does reflect God's standard of the relationship that, we, that, that man is to have with him, and, and while Adam's failure affects our condition, the covenant of works also directs us to Christ. Listen to how Paul continues in Romans 5. He says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, man, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one Trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteous, righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ the second and better Adam succeeded where the first and worst Adam failed. He came and served as our new and better federal head. 
And just as Adam disobeyed on our behalf and his sin and guilt was imputed to us, Christ obeyed on our behalf. And his righteousness has been credited to us. He fully kept the law. He obeyed to the point of death on the cross. He took our sin, and we have been clothed in his righteousness. Our demerit was overcome by his merit. We haven't earned our right standing. It's a gift. Our relationship has been restored by the grace of God. By God's grace, we, are, we as those who are looking to Christ are no longer under the covenant of works. We're under the covenant of grace. Our relationship has been restored not by our works, but by His works on our behalf. Our eternal life was earned by Him because He met God's standard for us. He fulfilled the covenant of works in our place, on our behalf. Thanks be to God for His grace, His mercy, His love, and His kindness. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you allow us and enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.